This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today I'll be joined by Adam Fabry, who is a lecturer of political economy at the National University of Chilecito in Argentina. Thanks for joining us today, Adam. Hi. uh, Hello, everybody, and thank you very much, Stephen, for inviting me to the podcast. So uh, I'm really excited to talk about uh, Adam's new book. We're coming to you between San Diego and um, Argentina. This is exciting for me. His new book is called The Political Economy of Hungary from State Capitalism to Authoritarian Neoliberalism, published by Palgrave in 2019. A little bit about Adam. He received his PhD from Brunel University in the UK under the supervision of Gareth Gale. Adam's research interests include international political economy, uneven and combined development, neoliberalism, and the history and politics of the far right with a regional focus on Central Eastern Europe and Latin America. His work has been published in many international journals, including Capital and Class, Competition and Change, Historical materialism, and a recent, in, re- recent really interesting article I read by Adam in Jacobin. So I want to start with a couple of um, big questions because this is a complex and, and as I like it, multi-scalar book. Um, Adam, could you begin by telling us what you mean by neoliberalism? It's such a contested term, and I think, as you rightly put it, it's almost like an academic. F word, right? Um, what what is it, and what is your working understanding of it? Um, well, uh, that's a that's a very uh, important and and, uh, and and a huge question, uh, um, of course. Um, I I think uh, it's important to say from the beginning that uh, my understanding of neoliberalism has evolved uh, over the years and and it's something that I'm continuously working on um, so um, I I would say that my interpretation is um, is uh, three layered uh, I would say so uh, on the one hand we can see neoliberalism of course as an ideology uh, a, a contradictory one, uh, uh, which um, 
uh, rhetorically uh, promotes, of course, uh, the self-regulation of markets, um, but at the same time, for instance, uh, is is um, is actively advocating for state intervention when markets fail, or in order to promote the extension of markets in areas which haven't been governed by the logic of the uh, of 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 the market. Uh, um, so uh, that's one level, and that's normally uh, a level which heterodox uh, economists focus on. For instance, Stiglitz uh, uh, and and so on and so forth. But then there is also uh, a, a political element to uh, to neoliberalism, uh, which I think, for instance, David Harvey has 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 shown. Uh, that neoliberalism is also a class project uh, in a sense, no? So it's um, it's it's actively uh, advocating uh, um, the interests of 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 uh, capitalist class of capitalist class um, uh, throughout uh, the world. Uh, however, there is also a third layer to uh, neoliberalism, as as far as I see it, and 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 it. That's um, perhaps um, um, you can sum it up by by seeing it as uh, the current phase of capitalism, as capitalism has evolved uh, since the 1970s onwards. And uh, it's a phase characterized uh, by uh, financialization, by um, the... Commodification, the increase in commodification of the commons through privatizations and so on and so forth, and uh, uh, the, the regressive uh, redistribution of of wealth and and so on and so forth, and uh, um, attacks on trade unions and social collectives uh, throughout the world. So, uh, yeah, yeah that, that would be my summary of. Yeah, no, that, that's that's an excellent start, and and I think um, it's really important, as you say, right from the beginning, to talk about neoliberalism in the plural, the varieties of neoliberalism, um, and some of their limitations through various crises. So, um, I, I want to ask a question about the design of your book because I, I see your book moving through maybe 75 years of economic history. And, and of course, the centerpiece of this is Orban's regime. So uh, because we're on a podcast um, and not doing an interview by text, I will give you the option of moving forward or backward in time. <laughs> um, so to talk about either 1945 or 2020 and 2021, um, let's try to move forward Orban. Um, how do you conceptualize your book? I know you have five chapters and, and you end in um, this particular moment of, of what I think interestingly you call authoritarian ethnicist neoliberalism. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, um, so the, the, my book is uh, basically um, an extension, a revision of my PhD. Uh, and the, the, my PhD um, was uh, basically attempting to answer a number of questions, um, 
on the one hand, there is the question of, you know, uh, how does neoliberalism arrive to to Hungary and to other um, Soviet bloc economies, which have officially been closed off from the rest of the world for 60 years or so now? And uh, another interesting question, of course, and, and highly topical as we speak today is, you know, how do you explain the rise of uh, an, uh, what some, some people call a liberal or what I would call an authoritarian ethnicist regime, such as the one as Orban, you know, um, in the last uh, decade or so. So, right. um, um, yeah, I mean, um, those are some of the questions that I'm, I'm grappling with in, in the book. And I think... Um, the the way I'm I'm looking at it is that you need to, in order to explain Orban, you need to have an understanding of of what has happened in Hungary, and elsewhere in the region. Um, not only in since the transition uh, in 1989, but also how uh, neoliberalism was uh, emerging uh, uh, before before that period. Right. And I, I find it interesting what you do, because you you delve very deeply into the context in Hungary, um, particularly in the period from 1956 to 1968, well before the crisis of, of, 19, of, of 1973 or the, the foreign debt crisis in mm. the Warsaw Pact countries. So uh, how was it that you delved into Hungarian schools and and sources and could you introduce them who they are especially who these economists were mm. um in that early kind of period that what you what you would probably call the long durée of hungarian economic history how I mean, how far back do you go and who are they and, and what do you do uh so so yeah i mean uh, basically um um um, why I'm doing that is because I, I want to avoid this this sort of uh, dominant but quite cliche um, explanation of uh, of of um, uh, of economic history in, in within the Soviet bloc, which basically assumes that throughout the the whole uh, Soviet bloc you had a, a, a sort of very um, um, and the central planning was universe, uh, universal, and and you didn't have any uh, contrasting uh, any, any debates between economies of how to uh, reform or or uh, uh, improve that uh, that yeah. economic uh, structure. And that it's, it's was, a it's a Stalinist myth, right? I yeah. mean, it's one of the big Stalinist claims after 1949. Sorry, go ahead. Exactly, exactly. And and so basically, what I'm what I'm doing is. I'm, I'm looking at uh, um, the debates that uh, emerge in Hungarian society, especially amongst economists, in key moments such as uh, around um, uh, the opening, uh, uh, the, the brief opening that uh, emerges uh, with Imre Noj coming to power uh, in 1953. Uh, until uh, the Hungarian Revolution is crushed in 1956, and then there is another reform debate emerging in the 
uh, around the, the, the development of a new economic mechanism in 1968. And uh, a third uh, reform wave, as, as, as the literature has it, uh, from um, the late 1970s onwards. And uh, I look at these uh, different debates uh, and, and how they, they sort of they feed on to each other. Um, so, for instance, um, the reform economists that uh, that um, that were working on the new me- economic mechanism were borrowing heavily from the uh, from the ideas of uh, some of the key reformers uh, within Imbernoj's uh, government. Um, but I also look at what were the uh, relationships that these reform economists had with the outside world. And this mm-hmm. is, uh, yes. this is, of course, I'm, I'm not the only one doing this. I mean, there, there, for instance, Johanna Bockmann has written an entire book about this. Right. Um, Agnes Kodji, uh, another uh, um, Hungarian scholar, has written about this as well recently. And basically, we're all, um, I mean, from different theoretical uh, and perspectives, uh, coming to uh, a conclusion which which shows uh, that, um, uh, especially in the case of Hungary, uh, um, economists were very much uh, plugged into uh, a wider uh, wider debates, international debates. Um, uh, from already from the 1960s onwards, and uh, this uh, of course uh, contributed highly to to why what I call in, in the book uh, proto neoliberal ideas emerge uh, yeah. so easily uh, in Hungary uh, already well before the downfall. That is my next question. So um, it's a perfect segue into proto neoliberalism. This I have not heard of, um, and I wonder if, if our listeners um, could familiarize themselves with the term as you're using it um, to explain a lot of the debates, especially the, the debates that are happening in, in the 1960s and so forth. Because, right, I mean, there is this stereotype about the emphasis on heavy industry, but how, how do you come at proto neoliberalism in dialogue with the world economy? And especially in, in your focus on the reform economists, as, as you mentioned, what what do you do in your book, your chapters, to emphasize that? Mm. So, so basically, um, uh, what is uh, in terms of the uh, the Hungarian economy and and the, the but the whole Soviet bloc uh, as a whole from the nineteen sixties onwards, there is a, an increasing crisis of capital accumulation. Um, as a result of uh, the, 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 the basically the, the limitations of uh, of a model which has have emph- emphasized a, a form of policies similar to primitive accumulation uh, earlier achieved in, in in the West in in the eighteenth uh, and nineteenth centuries, um, and uh, as this. Uh, limitations become uh, evident the the debates among reform economists in in Hungary um, uh, start to uh, emphasize the introduction of um, on the one hand a greater integration with the world economy 
and the introduction of uh, market reforms. Um, so, for instance, the reduction of central planning, uh, greater autonomy for enterprises in terms of the allocation, uh, the production and, and investment uh, decisions. Uh, the, 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 for instance, the new economic mechanism of 1968 rewrites the, the, the labor law uh, to promote greater efficiency and profitability of enterprises. Now, uh, mm. th- these are uh, these are policies that y- you wouldn't really associate with um, uh, a state socialist or uh, exactly yeah. or a communist regime. No. Uh, yes. And in the case of Hungary, there are even uh, joint ventures uh, being allowed uh, following the new economic mechanism with uh, Western uh, multinationals. So these are um, the, the inceptions of um, what would bo- go on to become, um, uh, you know, some of the central tenets of, of neoliberalism in the uh, following the regime change. And I, I, th- I think it's it's important to trace them all the way back to this period because uh, it shows that on the one hand, as I said, uh, Hungarian economists were very well integrated into into the international epistemic community uh, and their ideas of how to reform the system were of course uh, influenced by 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 the debates that they had with uh, economists in the west um, yeah and I'm, I'm i'm thinking about the role of the budapest school of marxists you know i mean agnes heller of course and marcus and hegedush um were were the, these sort of members of the Budapest School of Marxism involved in these radical left debates? I mean, of course, they're dismissed. But mm. what what happens after, let's say, 1968 to them and, and to some of these debates that you're talking about through the, through the 70s? Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very a good question. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I think that... Um, uh, it's important to um, to to uh, to emphasize that the I mean the the new economic mechanism what what it does is that it, it opens up a, a space for debate which which I mean of course was unimaginable following the the crushing of the Hun- Hungarian revolution so of course we see uh, the emergence of um, uh, of uh, on the one hand, we see the emergence of uh, these proto-neoliberal uh, ideas, uh, and and I would say that it's uh, they are dominant. So, in in terms of uh, at least economic debates, they are they are absolutely dominant. There is not very much in terms of radical left-wing um, perspective being put forward uh, in yeah. terms of how to reforming the economy. Um, the Budapest School, uh, of course, uh, is very important in terms of its contributions uh, to Marxist philosophy. But it's in, uh, but the regime is absolutely uh, uh, it's, it's frightened about the possible impacts that the mm-hmm. Budapest School might have on 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 workers, on wider on the on the working class. So in the in the early seventies, that they 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 uh, stamped down on, on the Budapest school um, 
some of the members uh, are leave the country and so on and so forth. And what's left is basically the 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 the, the pro market uh, uh, economists seek their hiding in in different uh, research institutions. Um, but their ideas are, are are developed. But in terms of any left wing alternative to the to the regime, those yeah. ideas fade fairly um, fairly quickly. So by the nineteen eighties, um, there there are very few uh, groups uh, promoting an, a sort of left wing alternative to uh, um, to uh, yeah. to the regime. And and and, and you mentioned Johanna Buckman's work. Um, and, and I think you're you're indebted. Correct me if I'm wrong. Pretty heavily to Gramsci. Uh, I w- I'm thinking about the um, Dimitrov Square Boys um, mm, yeah. and, and the members of members of the group really who take part in reform debates. Could, could you could you introduce them some of these institutional almost like technocrats, right? I mean, they're experts and technocrats who who become organic intellectuals, but you describe them in a very interesting way as as neoliberals or proto neoliberals. So, by name, who who were they, and what are their institutes, and and what do they do through the mid eighties? Yeah. So basically, in in one of the chapters of my book, I analyze, uh, um, I focus very heavily on um, what I would regard as the key intellectual citadel of of proto neoliberal or neoliberal ideas. In Hungary prior to 1989, and that's the Financial Research Institute, uh, known in Hungarian as the Pénzügyi Kutatóintézet. And uh, most people who who've, uh, who've done work on Hungary or are from Hungary, they they, they would immediately associate uh, the, the people that I'm going to mention now as 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 some of the the leading figures of neoliberalism in in Hungary. So, for instance, you have People like Lajos Bokros, György Surányi, uh, Matolci, uh, Tardos, Kupa, etc. These are all uh, uh, intellectuals slash later on politicians um, mm-hmm. who play a, a key role in, in the ascendancy and later, later on the consolidation of, of neoliberal ideas in, in Hungary. I mean... It's 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 quite impressive that a small research institute, uh, yeah. which was only founded in in 1968, uh, has I think three or four uh, of the fin- finance ministers of Hungary following 1990 come from this research institute. Uh, several uh, of the heads of the central bank and so on and so forth. So it's really a, a key center for the development of of neoliberal ideas. Uh, in Hungary, and um, the economists um, uh, that work at this institute, it's uh, it's interesting to note that uh, on the one hand they were well trained in neoclassical economics, uh, which they received from their uh, their schooling at um, the Karl <laughs> yeah. uh, Marx University. Uh, I can imagine how appropriate the Karl Marx uh, University, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and they were officially technocratic in their sort of mm-hmm. worldview, but uh, they harbored very close connections with uh, reform circles in, in the MSMP, with dissident yeah. circles, and also with international financial circles. 
So several yeah. of these, uh, these economies, they went to the West in, in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, they, they had spells in the IMF, the World Bank, and so on and so forth. And uh, that's really where they uh, developed uh, or, or um, um, they developed yeah. their ideas. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm, I'm really fascinated by how you do this in your book, because it, take, for instance, um, Matulchi, right? Um, you know, I mean, he is, he's the minister of economy um, and a very important figure, but he's the minister of economy during the first and second Orban governments, Matulchi George. And he's someone who, who's initially, let's say, he has initially has an, an advocacy for privatization, and then he becomes critical of capitalism, and then he switches up again. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested because if you take someone like Matochi and his career and his relationship with Orban and, and Fides, I mean, how, how flexible are these ideas? Is it, is it just a matter of taking position and then changing it and adapting it to the regime at a particular moment in time? Or, or let's say, are these true believers like in the Jeffrey Sachs kind of mold in, in a particular approach to the world economy? I'm, inter- I'm interested in your characters. In that yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, my uh, answer would be that in the case of the Financial Research Institute economists, um, you can find you can find both. So you can, on the one hand, find uh, people like Bokros, Lajos Bokros, who have been very, uh, I mean, already from the uh, mid '80s onward, been very, very um, dogmatic in their belief in the neoliberal uh, beliefs. No. Uh, and uh, this, this, I mean, his career sort of reflects the 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 the, the, the different waves of neoliberalism, or the uh, the the, uh, the different periods of neoliberalism, quite well. So he was very popular in the in the eighties and nineties, but as neoliberalism sure. became, uh, you know, the, the the social cost of neoliberalism became increasingly higher and higher, he his political career faded. Uh, mm-hmm. And then right. you have uh, people like you mentioned, Matolchi, who, uh, exactly as you said, in, in, in the uh, late 1980s was an advocate of spontaneous privatization. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, has been able to, to, to change his beliefs uh, pretty much depending on where the wind blows. Uh, and, and so... Um, uh, by the time he enters the Orban government, he's an advocate of, of increasing state intervention in the economy uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and and so he's he's really one of these um, uh, characters that that seem to be quite flexible in, in terms of mm-hmm. his, his beliefs. Right. Right. Oh, OK, so I want to switch to, to 1989 and beyond 1989. So. 
The first question here is, is what is what is the significance of 1989 in your book? And the second question is about privatization. So um, there are many phases, as you say correctly, I think, of the privatization of the Hungarian economy. So how then does that proceed, let's say, from 1990 forward, and, and at least through the, the so-called golden age or the boom years up to the mid-2000s? Yeah, um, uh, okay. So, um, I mean, 1989, uh, um, it's, it's uh, the answer to that question. I mean, I, I would probably have uh, responded differently to uh, to that question if you would have asked me maybe uh, two decades ago. <laughs> so, sure. Uh, and and, and uh, uh, most people in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe would probably have responded differently as well. Um, I think um, uh, 1989, as, as, as far as I see it, uh, today, of course, remains a highly important historical date. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think it's uh, it's important to acknowledge that a large part of uh, of the transition, um, economic and political transition, had already begun uh, mm-hmm. prior to that date. Uh, which means that the outcomes, the po- possible outcomes of um, the the revolutionary wave of eighty nine, were very limited. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, I think it's uh, it's important to bear that in mind. Um, how 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 do you how do you mean that, Adam? I mean, where what sectors of the economy would you focus on to emphasize that point? Uh, well, so so if we look at privatization, for instance, I mean, uh, privatization had uh, already begun uh, before 1989, uh, although in in very shady ways. Um, um the the hungarian economy was um was so heavily indebted by by you know by the by the by 1989 that the the the, the options available to any democratic government um uh, assuming power uh, were very limited uh, and that's also important to to remember uh, right. So that made, of course, the, the introduction of neoliberal reforms uh, much uh, not straightforward, but much easier, uh, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And we also have yeah. to remember that that I mean, the, there was no. It, it's not like uh, here in 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 Latin America, for instance, there wasn't a, a, a strong social movement or strong trade unions, independent trade unions present uh, advocating for alternatives to mm-hmm. uh, neoliberal uh, shock therapy. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking about the power of, of people like Klaus and, and Gaidar and Balcerovich. So uh, the alternatives that, that exist toward privatization, what what are they? I mean, what are they, let's say, in these phases that you're discussing because mm. as you say, I think probably right, you know, the privatization of the Hungarian economy may have been 60, 70 percent before 1989. So it's not exactly a shock what comes um, in the early 90s, but it, it certainly is transformative through the International Monetary Fund. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, so so yeah. I mean, basically, um, uh, the first government that comes to power in Hungary uh, in uh, after the transition is a is a conservative uh, center right government coalition, uh, and uh, as I said, b- because of the pressures, the, the external pressures uh, in terms of foreign debt, indebtedness, and so on and so forth, uh, they. Uh, they accept uh, privatization, uh, the selling of the so- so-called crown jewels of the economy, uh, pretty much without hesitation. Uh, mm-hmm. Up until there is a split uh, in the main party of, of the right-wing coalition in 1993, uh, as as a, as a what, incidentally as a reaction to 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 the to, to the privatization and. The, the, the selling out of the uh, almost the entire economy to to foreign capital, um, yeah, and and as a result of that, there is a brief uh, sort of interregnum between nineteen ninety three and ninety four, in which uh, privatization is is stopped or um, uh, there is an attempt at least to to try to promote uh, the development of national capital. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, comparatively, if you look at the other Central and East European economies, how do you understand this particular moment of, of let's say, the late economic boom before the Great Recession hit, right? Because there is, a, there is the EU-10 enlargement in so-called post-communist states. Do you still read this as a boom period for Hungary going into let's say 2005, 2006, 2007, you seem to offer a really unique revisionist perspective on that moment. Yeah. So uh, what you would normally um, uh, hear in the sort of uh, the, 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 the mainstream narrative of the, of the period uh, between late 1990s and, and up until uh, the Great Recession is that this is, uh, uh, as you said, a, a, a veritable boom period uh, throughout the region. It's a period in which the, the economies of the region are catching up uh, with, uh, with, the, with the West and so on and so forth. And that is, um, I mean, to a certain extent, true. Uh, economic growth uh, in the EU-10 economies uh, is uh, three times higher uh, than than the than the old uh, EU fifteen economies, um, but uh, <laughs> of course um, that's purely looking at uh, GDP growth per year. So if we dig deeper, um, um, you know, behind these uh, figures, then we see uh, that. Um, these, uh, on the one hand, this this boom is 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 uh, the the basis of this boom is capital inflows uh, from uh, from predominantly international banks uh, lending heavily to, to the region, uh, which of course is is will then turn out to be very um, uh, put these economies in a very vulnerable position once the uh, financial crisis hits. But also uh, the boom period masks uh, heavy, uh, um, heavy um, 
inequalities, not only income inequalities uh, in these economies, but also increasing regional inequalities. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting there, I think, is that uh, the, in throughout the region, there um, the areas that are sort of left behind uh, in this so uh, boom period are the the former uh, industrial heartlands of um, uh, of the state socialist period, and this is right. <laughs> eventually where yeah. uh, where the far right uh, or the liberals. Uh, have their strongest support. support. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I want and I want to talk about that with you because we're we're skirting around the elephant in the room, who is of course Orban and his <laughs> career. So I, I mean, everything in many like from market fundamentalism on backwards, so called. It, it's it's a lead up to Orban and Orbanismus. Um, but I want you to talk about your conceptualization of his career because. You, you take him seriously, and um, many of the speeches that he gives, including the, the 2010 Jamboree speech about how Western capitalism has failed. So how, how do you, let's say, as a, an evolutionary sociologist and a political economist and a historian, put Orban in a new context? What is it that your book does? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean... Um... I think um, Orban, um, uh, in a way, I mean, it, it doesn't really make sense to, uh, for me, this, um, what a lot of the sort of the dominant view of Orban as, you know, as some, some uh, rug uh, leader, you know, or as some people call him a modern day uh, uh, mafioso who you know just promotes his own economic interests and those of his closest families and friends. Roland yeah. so, Mod- Mod- work for that, right? The post-communist mafia state. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, it it sort of uh, fails to to put uh, uh, Orban within a broader context. You know, I mean, it's not like Orban. Uh, emerges out of of nowhere, and it's not like his uh, economic policies are, are are you know he's he's just playing around with with an economic toolbox uh, without any relationship to what's going on in the wider world economy, uh, and uh, that's why I think it is important to to have uh, a clear understanding uh, of his uh, his whole political career. Uh, because then, for instance, we can see that uh, this authoritarian uh, slide in the case of Orban is much, much, uh, much, much deeper. It goes back all the way back to the mid nineties. Um, mm. um, so it's not like he woke up in twenty ten and said, "Oh, you know what? I'm going to construct a liberal regime yeah, yeah. in Hungary." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because well, that, that's that's my question. I mean, I'm wondering if there's if there is a defined Orbanomics. It, it, I mean, is there something that you can call Orbanomics, like Reaganomics, or or there is no alternative um, in the Thatcher years? Is there something definable that you can trace over time up to exactly what you know the regime does by the mid 2000 teens when they introduce these regressive policies and the flat tax and those other things? Right. Mm. I mean, 
can can you define it? Because there there are some unusual things within Orban's policies. Eventually, after you know they begin passing the legislations. Yeah, I, I think. Um, uh, well, I mean, one uh, key. Um, I actually quote uh, quite extensively and. and a biography that was written uh, uh, on Orban in 19, following his electoral defeat in 1994 uh, by a Hungarian journalist called Joseph Debreceni. Uh, and in that interview, uh, at one stage, he, he outlines his, his vision of how to restructure the, the Hungarian economy. And, um, and basically, he says, Quite very very openly, you know, what we need to do is to centralize uh, power uh, in the hands of the executive, and then uh, you know al- allow uh, or promote um, a couple of strong, uh, uh, I mean, strong national capitalists to to dominate key sectors of the economy. Uh, mm-hmm. And and if you look at uh, what he's been doing since uh, twenty ten, then that's definitely you know one 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 continuity in in that sense. Now, of course, yeah. his ability to do so is 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 very much limited by by external constraints. So it's not like sure uh, he can just you know say to. Uh, BMW and Mercedes and 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 Audi that you know from tomorrow I'm going to take over your factories and I'm going right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. some 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 of my my closest friends and allies to uh, to to run these factories instead, but uh, yeah. that's definitely one of the continuities. Um, yeah, and 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 I'm interested in those parallels between Latin American economies because. You know, I mean, you write again in your later chapters that the consolidation of the Orban regime is an excellent chapter I'd recommend about these multinational corporations. So you've got Microsoft and Suzuki and Audi and I forget the other General Electric. But, you know, I mean, German business loves Orban and and this is often forgotten. Right. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. But what what are some of the parallels that you see with this um Really, like a sellout to um, multinational corporations. Mm. Well, uh, on the one hand, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry to disappoint uh, my liberal friends uh, or liberal uh, <laughs> listeners to this podcast who were hoping that finally the EU were gonna uh, put its foot down uh, against Orbán and and uh, and um, and uh, the Law and Justice Party. In, Law and Justice uh, government in, in Poland, uh, with re- regards to the the, the new budget uh, discussions, uh, that doesn't seem to have happened, and it, it you know it it doesn't it doesn't happen uh, it hasn't happened for the for the simple reason as 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 you say that uh, Hungary uh, in for uh, foreign investors is 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 pretty much a, a, a paradise you know. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it offers uh, significantly lower labor costs compared to um, compared to um, the core capitalist states in in the West. Uh, it offers um, uh, the right to re, re, uh, repay, repatriate profits uh, and so on and so forth. And you know, labor is is, is kept very much in, yeah. in 
uh, under control and through a, a, right. a government that is increasingly authoritarian as by the day. So um, the absence of trade unions and and health and education, healthcare, and those sorts of things. I mean, workers' rights are, are practically non-existent under Fides and and the coalition. Um, and and how I mean, how do you see this then going forward with how well? these liberal politics function in the authoritarian ethnicist state. We have mm. to talk about some of the intersections between economics and culture. So yeah. how, how do you how do you envision that? Because you know obviously our listeners are, are going to tune into this and, and they're going to want to hear about um, Soros and CEU <laughs> and um, the various things that are happening in Budapest, but I mean your book expands well beyond that into into both macroeconomics and, and culture mm. well uh i mean uh i i think um there are there have been times in the last decade where, where even i have have had to pinch myself uh, because some of the um the conspiracy theories for instance em- emerging from budapest uh, uh are are just you know uh, beyond belief, uh, and uh, and it, it, it's uh, yeah. it's it's also uh, when you when you remember how Fides was a- a- actively advocating uh, against uh, these very sort of far right conspiracy theories in Parliament in the early nineteen nineties, uh, then then it's even in it's it's even more. Um, Sad, uh, in a sense, to see what's what's happening uh, uh, in Hungary these days. Um, I think um, we have to again we we have to um, look beyond Hungary and, in a sense, look beyond the region as well. Because um, I think we are very much uh, Orban is is very much showing uh, that the a possible path. I'm not saying this is going to be uh, the the path forward. But it's very much showing uh, a possible path forward uh, uh, in uh, on on uh, on, a, on a global scale for capitalism, um, mm-hmm. and so in that sense, I think it's important to to pay attention uh, uh, to to developments in Hungary and, and link them to developments elsewhere as well. Um, yeah. Do do you? See, I mean, what role do you see, Adam? I have to ask it, but what what role do you see for the EU? Because, you know. You've got some beneficiaries from Fides, if you describe them as neoconservative, I'm not sure, but the far right Jobbik, you know, sometimes they're in the opposition and sometimes they're benefiting from these policies, especially since the two-thirds supermajority, right, in the in the 2018 elections. Mm. So, uh, we're, I mean, where does, where does the EU um, function in this? Is it just a malfunctioning organization by this moment judging from from hungary and poland and what are what are the parallels that you see uh well um personally i i don't have very high um uh, expectations of of uh the eu uh intervening in 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 any uh substantial uh way in hungary or in poland for that matter either uh simply because i mean that's not what the eu was made up to, to do in the first place <laughs> um, yeah uh, so a, a lot of times um, and I think this this you know 
a lot of people on the left uh, still have illusions of, of the EU being sort of a, there is a possibility to reform the EU, to, to promote sort of a more social welfare agenda within the EU. But that's not mm-hmm. really what the EU was uh, constructed to do from, from the beginning. And, and, and there are very important breaks uh, 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 that on different institutional levels that stop the EU from actually pursuing a more progressive agenda. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I don't really, really see uh, the, the EU um, having uh, uh, neither the ability nor the interest to do to intervene. Yeah, uh, and, in, and, and, and from and from that angle, could could you suggest? Um, Marxist political economists. I mean, there, there's the work, of course, of Tariq Ali, this very influential idea of the extreme center, mm. right? Mm. I mean, to, to understand, you know, from new left, but really from leftist circles and Marxist circles, um, the importance of what has happened with the abolition of constitutional checks and balances and, and the whipping up of the xenophobia what what do you see as the intellectual contribution of Marxist political economists to this dialogue? Um, so um, um, th- there's been uh, f- um, uh, excellent contributions, uh, for instance, from uh, from several Greek uh, Marxists. Um, so Kostas Lapavitsas has written an entire book on on, on offering sort of a a left-wing uh, critique, a uh, Marxist critique of, of the EU. Um, my uh, good friend Statis Kovilakis has, has also written several, uh, he wrote several uh, excellent pieces in New Left Review at the height of the of the Greek crisis, um, and sort of very <laughs> clearly outlining uh, the limitations uh, of, of, uh, of the EU. Uh, and uh, also the late uh, I have to mention the late uh, Neil Davidson who passed uh, away earlier this year who mm. who, uh, who wrote also uh, extensively on uh, on on the limitations of the EU yeah and in journals like like critical sociology for instance on yeah. the far right yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so uh, last question I, I really have for you before I ask you about your your current work um if if you could if you could predict I don't know if you could predict but the history of, of the 2020s um, in Hungary and Central and Eastern Europe um, do you see the entrenchment of um, this kind of group of I don't want to call them mafiosi but they are oligarchs and maybe a handful of them um, do you see a pattern for urbanism? happening not just in Hungary but elsewhere around the world as the far right continues to be ascendant? Mm. Um, well um, uh, I think that um, as I mentioned earlier um, th- there is definitely uh, uh, I mean Orban uh, Orbanism definitely uh, if you uh, has has a future you know uh, not just in the region but but also globally. So, for instance, I think we can, you know, Trump and Bolsonaro and, and these kind of characters, they're not going to go away from one day to another, even though uh, Trump seems to, uh, uh, has, has lost uh, the election. Uh, um, 
they're not going to go away from one day to another. And they're not going to go away, uh, especially because the the con I mean the contradictions that the deepening of of neoliberalism uh, neo, neo neoliberal uh, policies uh, the impact of these policies uh, um, so uh, you know um, even even let's suppose that uh, Orban will be defeated in the twenty twenty two elections I mean the 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 government the uh, the yeah that's my the, question <laughs> yeah the the, the, uh, the alternative coalition that it currently exists in Hungary is, includes everything from your big uh, so, sort of uh, ex-far right to uh, extreme centrists uh, like Durchan, you know, and these people mm-hmm. are most probably not going to uh, introduce very progressive uh, social policies. Uh, on the one hand, because they don't want to, uh, on the other hand, because they won't be able to, uh, because of the external pressures from the EU and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I think that uh, on the one hand, you know, if uh, some days when I wake up, uh, I would say that the future looks <laughs> looks very bleak. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also important to to acknowledge that there are important limitations to this model that uh, Orban is is uh, developing. So you know, COVID mm-hmm. has 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 imposed uh, has made blatantly clear that you know the 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 Hungarian healthcare system is has been completely underfunded under the uh, Orban regime, and it's yeah. it's it's, yeah. it's it's a serious uh, it's causing a serious health crisis, you know. Uh, yeah. And it's a question how long people will tolerate this uh, in in Hungary. Um, yeah. What I don't see uh, emerging, at least in Hungary. I mean, Poland is a different case altogether. But what I don't see emerging in Hungary at the moment is uh, a strong, um, critical um, um, sort of left-wing alternative uh, based in in social movements uh, with relations to independent trade unions and so on and so forth. That is 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 not uh, happening uh, in Hungary mm-hmm. today. There are important uh, intellectual com- contributions emerging. Um, um, you know, so there are more and more uh, critical political economists uh, writing on on the Orban regime and so on and so forth. But right. there is no sort of mass force. Uh, yeah, that, that would be able to topple the regime. I, yeah, I know a lot of people are looking are looking for that and wondering wondering what its headquarters could be. So in the last two two minutes, could you tell us about your current projects or research, um, if you're working on a current book or article? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I just finished actually uh, an article which compares <laughs> uh, the different types of authoritarian neoliberalism in Hungary and Poland. Uh, that's coming out uh, just before Christmas, I think, in, in the Journal of Australian Political Economy. Um I'm also working on a little uh, uh, article with uh, Cornel Ban, an excellent political economist from Romania, which looks at uh, economic nationalism in Central and Eastern Europe in the last decade. Uh, and there are, of course, uh, some some uh, pieces that uh, should be focusing more on Latin American uh, developments and neoliberalism in Argentina. But, yeah, uh, I would, I would really, I would really love to read that, and I, I hope um, those comparisons not only are made, but 
um, that there's a wide audience for the publication of books like that, and you'll continue yeah. to work on it. So I, I want to take this moment um, to identify myself and Adam. We've been speaking with Adam Adam Fabri, who uh, is a lecturer of political economy in Argentina, and his new book is called "The Political Economy of Hungary." From State Capitalism to Authoritarian Neoliberalism. This is published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. Thank you so much, Adam, for being on the New Books Network podcast with me today. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much.